The news on RTHK. The weak global economy. Easy. The volatility and the upswings and the moods. Sort of a deflationary phenomenon again. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Wednesday's Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. U.S. stocks uh, fell slightly after a mixed day. A Greek stalemate leaves Cyprus facing a final offer from creditors and Vanguard will add China A shares to their emerging markets stock index fund ETF. Well, mainlanders are flocking to Hong Kong to buy stocks that they could get at home. But why? We'll ask our markets commentator and guest host, Cathay Conning Asset Management CEO, Mark Conan. Following that, DLA Piper's Ian Jebet will talk about the amendment law on advertising in China. And then Bloomberg's Craig Trudel gives us the skinny on futuristic taxis uh, that uh, drive by themselves. Well, uh, good morning, Mark. Morning. And welcome to guest hosting at Money for Nothing. My pleasure to be here. So, Mark, uh, Alexis Cyprus finds himself boxed into a corner as creditors prepare to deliver a final proposal to end the stalemate over Greece's financial lifeline. Will he have no choice but to go back on some of his election promises? Well, I think that's already the case. And whether or not whatever is agreed, which has to be agreed, whether that uh, washes with the uh, populace back in Greece is the big question, whether they'll still have a mandate from the people to continue along the path which they uh, were elected on, because clearly they've had to moderate their stance and they've had to, you know, to use a, a hackneyed phrase, take the medicine. But they will reach a deal. No choice. I mean, even though in the last round, which was when we went right down to the wire, they ended up paying back the IMF with their own money. Uh, this time they have to you know, pay, pay uh, what's due. It's uh, one and a half billion euros this month. Yeah, well, the euro rallied on optimism about a deal, gaining uh, 2% against the dollar. Greek bonds also rose with yield on the two-year security, falling 96 basis points to 23.9% in Athens. And U.S. stocks finished lower overnight in choppy trade, following uh, European equities downward over concerns about this possible default by Greece. The Dow Jones was at 18,011. That's down 0.16%. The S&P 500 was at uh, 2,109, down 0.1%. And the NASDAQ was uh, also down 0.13% at 5,076. So are U.S. stocks overvalued? Jeremy Siegel is a finance professor at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School, and he thinks not. Although, yes, I, I agree that the current valuation of the market measured by the standard price earnings ratio is a little bit higher than the historical average. I think a higher P.E. ratio is fully justified in a world of record low interest rates. And even when the Fed raises them, they are going to still remain low on a historical standard. And in my estimation and, and my colleagues at, at Wharton, a lower discount rate means a higher average valuation for the stock market. So I certainly do not believe that it is overvalued at current levels. 
Some of the weaker data out of the U.S. helped underscore what Fed Governor Brainard said about the second quarter not looking too good and so possibly keeping a lid on the Fed being aggressive this year. Larry Fink, chairman and CEO of BlackRock, expects, however, that rates will rise by September. I think we're going to see a more divergent world. Um, and this is what I'm more concerned about, a more divergent world that is going to create um, more instability worldwide. And this is not maybe in the next 12 months, but over the next five years. Um, we are going to have action by the Federal Reserve. I think it will be September. I think it will be just the beginning of a long, slow normalization. And I think by January, February, we'll see Bank of England following up. So the question then is, where will the Fed funds peak once it has reached the pinnacle of its tightening cycle? Here's Jeremy Siegel again. My, my belief is, uh, and, and here I, 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 one of the rare times when I agree with Bill Gross, as you know, we've disagreed a lot about the stock market over the, the last five, six years. But uh, he named the new neutral of the Fed funds rate as 2%. And my own calculations confirm that that the average Fed funds rate probably over the next decade is going to remain at two. Now, that doesn't mean that at the peak of a tightening cycle, it won't be above two. It might get to three or maybe four, but then it's going to be brought down below two, back down to one or a half uh, when the economy uh, does soften. So we're going to have a lower average level of interest rates. Certainly the, the Fed funds rate might peak above two, but uh, I don't think it's going to be the four percent that we know the Fed has in its dot plot that it, it puts out every quarter in its uh, uh, economic projections. And India's stock markets fell after the country's central bank cut rates from seven and a half to seven and a quarter percent. This is the third time this year. The RBI said that it would have to wait to assess monsoon rains before acting again. An outlook that disappointed investors looking for more cuts to spur weak growth. Crossbridge capital strategist and head of investments Manish Singh says that while the tone is dovish on the rate cut, the outlook is actually One thing to remember is that food is 46% of the CPI basket. So if anything happens on food inflation front, it it ties the RBI governor's hand to to cut rates. And India is in a spot where when Rajan came in, he delivered three rate hikes. So this is like undoing of that, if I may say that. So three rate cuts, if you have seen this year. So the key things to remember, so from this announcement I I saw is that he has lowered the gross value-added GDP expectation. He has increased the inflation expectation for next year. So it looks like you may not see a new rate cut, a next rate cut happening until end of this year or early next year. So I think while the tone is is dovish in rate cut, but the outlook going forward is a bit hawkish. So I would expect that the market is not going to be taken very kindly, but this is reality. So if we have a good monsoon and if that relents the pressure on, on on inflation, then probably you're going to see much more recovery policy from RBI. And Sky News has reported that HSBC could announce thousands of job cuts at a strategy day next week. This is part of Chief Executive Stuart Gulliver's overhaul plan that could also see him sell operations in Brazil and Turkey and take a knife to his investment bank. An estimated 10 to 20,000 jobs will be axed. Well, uh, Mark, you know, China, Chinese stocks, I should say, rose for a second day this week with tech shares jumping to a record. Where are you finding value? 
Yeah, value is an interesting question anywhere uh, in the investment world. You talked a little bit um, just before we had a couple of interviews relating to whether or not the US market was overvalued. Um, as you look out into the emerging markets, we clearly see a number of markets which have serially underperformed and have been almost neglected by international investors. And China uh, is one of those asset classes where, although we've seen an extremely strong rally over the last 12 months, A shares up, what, 150% in Shanghai uh, over 12 months and uh, up uh, around around 50% for year to date. Uh, foreigners have pretty much been absent from that rally. So um, taking taking um, that into account, you do start to see some differentials in terms of uh, valuations, which uh, overall the market is not looking particularly stretched. Earnings are weak, of course, but if you start to break down some of the subsectors, you take out the energy sector, for example, uh, other sectors are doing a lot better. If you look at um, some of the producers um, and some of the, the smaller sectors, uh, they're looking at growth uh, in the first quarter year on year of about 12%, whereas the market as a whole shrank about 3% year on year on a very weak year the previous one so it, it really depends on on how you're seeing uh, the opportunity but really it's it's reforms and speculation on further reforms that's driving um, sentiment at the moment so producers you say rather than uh, what a lot of the analysts have been telling us on the show are tech stocks and finance stocks Yes, within finance, of course, uh, certain parts of the financial sector are doing extremely well. If you strip out the banks, you look at the non-bank uh, financial stocks, the brokers, the insurance companies, they typically do very well when the market, the stock market is doing well because they're a leveraged play on stock market performance. So take out the banks and there you've got some very good performing companies within the finance sector and, and also within technology, although they are in certain cases extremely expensive. Now, Mark, the money of thousands of mainlanders is flowing into brokerages in Hong Kong and then returning to China via share purchases through the Stock Connect program. Why? We're seeing a lot of money um, go now both ways, both uh, southbound and northbound. Originally southbound to try and exploit some of the valuation differences between A and H shares. Uh, and we're now seeing money rooted back the other way uh, as there are curbs put on uh, borrowing in margin accounts for retail investors up in mainland China. And in fact, when you saw the big sell-off on Thursday, there were a number of uh, factors which compounded uh, to uh, hurt sentiment, one of which was three of the leading brokers has uh, started to implement the latest policy, which was to limit the amount of borrowing on individual accounts. But this thing about, uh, you know, Chinese retail investors sort of uh, packing their suitcases and showing up here in Hong Kong to open brokerage accounts with brokers here rather than brokers on the mainland. Why are they doing that? Is it because it's cheaper? Uh, and I think it's a cost issue. As I say, there, there are limitations on the number of accounts that you can have in China. Uh, there's also um, some uh, speculation that um, the recently announced uh, uh, mutual recognition for mutual funds uh, is going gonna, is gonna to have an impact where you're going to see funds available in Hong Kong more broadly. And there's a certain uh, amount of um, uh, speculation around that also driving the market. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, also probably compounded by the fact that mainland brokers are tightening uh, margin financing Indeed. due to Indeed. scrutiny, yes. Do you believe, Mark, that government stimulus measures will buoy the economy and boost earnings? Well, I think we're starting to see some early signs of that. We saw the uh, data which has come out this week. Um, the manufacturing PMI, although the number was only marginally up on what was expected and, and what was reported previously. Again, if you break down into the, some of the subsectors, uh, we're starting to see some better um, but better numbers. It's, it's a really only a sign at this stage of stabilisation 
but certainly ahead of where expectations were. And then if you look at a, a housing survey which looked at um, the cost of housing, the prices of uh, property in 100 cities across China, that showed the first uh, increase for over 12 months. And that's a, that's a very positive sign because, as we know, the Chinese economy is extremely uh, sensitive and dependent on uh, the property sector. Yes, indeed. Okay, so uh, sort of leaving China for a moment, but still sort of on this topic of value and perhaps going back to what we were listening to earlier from Jeremy Siegel. Do you agree with him in that U.S. stocks might not be overvalued? Well, one of the symptoms of... um of, dare I say, a bubble or a, a, an exuberant market is that um, there's no end of uh, reasons given for why the market is trading on very high valuations. Uh, and if you use um, cyclically adjusted price earnings ratios and look back in history, where the market is now in the US is at its third highest level. Uh, and the previous two that beat the current levels were back in the uh, Great Crash in the twenties and the uh, at the height of the tech bubble, uh, the turn of the millennium. So it's you know in a historical sense it's very expensive. So there's that camp which believes that uh, the market is uh, has o- overrun itself. But then again we are in exceptionally um, distinguished c- circumstances where we have these exceptionally low interest rates which will stay low for some time. We're still seeing savers, uh, consumers rather save rather than spend in the US. We're not seeing a lot of inflationary pressure out there. Uh, And as long as that is maintained, even if the Fed does raise rates this year, which is uh, a moot point, uh, it's unlikely to be followed up with a a thrusting drive of further rate uh, increases. What about emerging markets? Well, emerging markets have underperformed uh, serially, as as I mentioned earlier. A lot of them are affected by the low commodity uh, prices, which has been um, really beaten down. Commodity prices have been beaten down by the low growth in China, which is going to be sustained, as we know. Uh, And others have really struggled because uh, global trade is really not recovering. You're not seeing a consumption-driven recovery in the US, certainly not Europe, and certainly not Japan, despite our bonomics. Um, So particularly in this part of the world, it's the trade picture that is hurting. In other parts of the world, Brazil and Russia, it's the commodity prices that have really hurt. One market has stood out as a big allocation has been India, where you've seen the prospect of reforms really spurring investors to take positions and overweight that market. But as of late, you're starting to see a a, a cycle of money out of uh, India and moving much more towards Northern Asia. And as I say, although foreign investors have had a very large underweight in China, we're starting to see that gap close, not least because um, two of the largest uh, and most prominent index providers that Mm. provide information on how to invest your money on on a passive basis are contemplating adding China to their index series. And is that going to shift the needle on those uh, specific emerging market ETFs? Well, ETFs that are passively managed have no choice, but once the index uh, admits those stocks into, into, their, uh, into their benchmark, uh, those passive funds have to follow. All right. Let's take a quick look at the numbers now. The Nikkei is down half a percent this morning to 20,432. Australia's ASX 200 index is up 0.05% to 5,642. And Seoul's Kospi up just slightly 0.01% to 2,078.
Well, the amended PRC advertising law was officially approved in <clears throat> April and will come into force on September 1st this year. So what does this mean for businesses in China? Let's bring in DLA Piper's IP attorney, Ian Jebet. Good morning, Ian. Morning. Ian, could you give us a brief uh, introduction on this uh, and background, I should say, on this amended law? Yeah, well, I think one of the first things to remember is the fundamental principle of advertising law is to to actually stop adv- advertising that is misleading or false. And the the current PRC advertising law was actually enacted in 1995. And if you cast your mind back to 1995, that was when uh, Microsoft was still using Windows 3.1. And in the latter part of 1995, saw the introduction of Windows... Windows 95, and it was 1995 in which the internet was actually first introduced into the home place. And for your financial uh, listeners, it may may be of interest to know that it was actually the same year in which Nick Leeson was arrested for his involvement in the collapse of Bearings Bank. But a lot of things happening. Five, <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the point I'm trying to make is, in the last 20 years, I've seen massive changes in the way that businesses advertise, specifically in the rise of social media and the internet, and. The new law is really looking to modernise the advertising framework in China and bring it up to speed with current practices and current methods and ways of delivering advertising. And there are some specific amendments that will be coming into force that deal with direct marketing via the internet. So things like contacting people via social media and and email, there will need to be specific consents in place. There are also restrictions regarding... I'm sure we're all familiar with the pop-up advertising that we see, mm. and you get the the annoying boxes that you're forever chasing around the screen to try and get rid of. The uh, the, the new law introduces specific restrictions about about culling that and not interfering with users' internet experience. So it's really about modernising modernising the legal framework. Mark, you had some thoughts? Yeah, Ian, I was just wondering. I saw there was a case in India recently about um, celebrity endorsements where one of the big Bollywood, ex-Bollywood stars was um, challenged for endorsing um, some noodles, suggesting they were healthy food for kids, and then suddenly it was found that some of the ingredients perhaps weren't. Is, is that going to be covered under, under this, new, this new batch of legislation? Yeah, there's actually two, two, two points I'd raise there. One, there is a new, there's, there's new uh, provisions that specifically deal with advertising at children and prohibit advertising things that are unhealthy or dangerous to children. And also on the celebrity endorsement point, what what celebrities need to be aware of is under the new law, if you endorse a product or an advertisement that is in breach of the new law, the person endorsing it can actually be responsible and held liable for that breach as well. So when you're endorsing a product as a celebrity, you really need to be aware of that product and make sure that the the advertisement that is promoting that product isn't actually going to fall foul of this law. Now, Ian, um, when it comes to social media and specifically in China, where do you sort of draw the line between general social media use, advertising and direct marketing through social media? Is there a difference that's clear? It's obviously social media is a very complicated complicated area there are lots of different social media platforms but what the new law is actually going to look at is the direct marketing of specific products and this will be contacting people via email via their facebook accounts via via other social media platforms and actually specifically targeting certain products at them and in the financial in the financial uh, 
field, there are specific restrictions around the promotion of investment products. So if you're, tar- if you're targeting someone with try- trying to sell a specific investment product, there are lots of restrictions in the new law that deal with things like promoting specific returns on investment. Is the capital that you're investing safe? And under the new law, you, you basically there is a complete whitewash on the ability to promote financial products that have risk. If so, what about brokers then? Doesn't this put them in a grey area? It's a really grey area. I mean, they're, they're obviously caught between a rock and a hard place. They need to promote their products, but they also need to make sure they don't fall foul of the the new law. And it's it's really a question of understanding the, the law and the framework in which you can you can work within that. And I think what we're going to see is gone are the days of advertisements guaranteeing year-on-year growth of 20%. That's just going to have to go because it will be in complete breach of the the new law. So it's just a question of looking at your current advertising methods and, and trying to trying to, trying to make sure that you stay within the law but whilst making your product look attractive as possible, which is the sort of the big challenges businesses are going to have. All right, Ian. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's Ian Jebbett, and he is an IP attorney at DLA Piper. Having discussed for so long, we can finally get it. Of course we shouldn't stand still. Let's have one person, one vote to have a say in Hong Kong's future. A regime of universal suffrage that complies with the basic law. Five million voters electing the chief executive for the first time. I'm Carrie Lam. For our future, cherish this opportunity. Please support the universal suffrage proposal. 2017. Make it happen. The time is now 8.24 a.m. and Uber has already disrupted the taxi industry. But now the idea of hopping onto a driverless car like uh, the one in the Hollywood blog blockbuster Total Recall might not be such a stretch of the imagination. Word has it that uh, robot taxis might be driving Olympic athletes around Tokyo in 2020. So let's bring in Bloomberg's uh, automotive reporter, Craig Trudel in Tokyo, who's following the story. Good morning, Craig. Good morning. So, uh, Craig, first thing that comes, to, <laughs> excuse me, to my mind is that is it even safe? I mean, can a company really convince people to hop onto a driverless taxi? Well, you know, it's it's definitely going to be a, a challenge for these companies. Uh, the, the two companies that are involved with this, uh, one is called DNA. It's a company that started out as an on- online auctions company, and it's evolved into a mobile social networking and, and gaming company. The other is this, uh, another company that's probably you know virtually under, unheard of outside of Japan. It's called ZMP. Uh, and while it's not a, a household name, uh, it, it, it has attracted some uh, investments from from companies you you have heard of like Intel and Sony, um, and and these are these two companies have said that uh, their goal is to get uh, driverless cars on the road in time for the 2020 Olympics, and uh, their their hope is to be able to taxi people around. Specifically, uh, their hope is to, to taxi athletes from wherever they're staying for the Olympics to uh, to the site of of their competitions. Now you know technologically, how does it actually work? I mean. I'm imagining this sort of a master control, you know, that sort of room or area or station that that directs these taxis around town based upon the instructions of, you know, what streets are trafficated or, you know, where where the paths are easier to maneuver. Explain it to us. 
Right. So, so ZMP is this company that's been working on, on these driverless cars actually for, for several years before we've really heard a lot of buzz about this from companies like Google and Uber. They've demonstrated this technology before in, in cars like the Prius uh, that they've uh, retrofitted to call what they become, uh, or to become what they call a robo-cars. Robo uh, the, the vehicles use uh, cameras and lasers and radar to kind of perceive the obstacles around them and get a, a sense of location. You have kind of a central command center that they're envisioning, you know, being able to track uh, to make sure that these cars are, are safe and, and uh, on the correct path. Essentially, uh, D what DNA brings to the table is almost like a car hailing app similar to an Uber uh, and, and bringing more of the software, uh, you know, for, for inside the vehicle to the table. And together, they think that, uh, you know, they can essentially deliver an experience where you call for a car using your, your phone, get in, plug in the location that you want to go to, and, and the car does the rest. Now, what about, you know, in human situations, of course, nothing is perfect. And although, you know, one can try their best to be a safe driver, there are those situations where it's the other driver, perhaps they were drinking or whatever, um, swerved off, you know, into another lane in front of you and an accident happens. How do these uh, robo cars, these robo drivers, driverless cars deal with this kind of situation? Well, it's it's certainly something that uh, it's, it's a matter of there's going to be a, a real uh, challenge here of convincing uh, regulators that uh, you can pull this off, uh, you know, despite all of those uh, outside forces that you describe. But really, when you, you think about, uh, you know, how humans uh, are, are, are driving cars, uh, uh, there's a, a lot of uh, flaws in, in the way we drive, right? Uh, we may drive distracted. We may drive, uh, you know, fiddling with our phones, or as you mentioned, uh, you know, um, driving under the influence. But, uh, you know, really, with, with uh, Google, uh, the, the person who's uh, directing their self-driving program, uh, you know, they've talked about the hours of, of test work that have gone into their driverless cars and all the accidents that have been caused uh, thus far have been uh, from, from other vehicles, not Google's vehicles. So uh, certainly uh, there, there's a lot, a lot of work to be done, and there's a question of, you know, just how acceptable, you know, some uh, accidents would be. Uh, but certainly uh, being able to, to put this into uh, the hands of, of uh, technology as opposed to, to humans that sometimes can get distracted or, or uh, you know, get behind the wheel uh, and, and, you know, uh, not put their full attention on driving. Okay. Uh, you know, there, there's room for improvement. So. All right, Craig, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but a very interesting uh, topic. That's Craig Trudel of Bloomberg joining us on the phone from Japan. Uh, let's take a quick look at the numbers now. The Nikkei is down 0.45% to 20,450. Australia's ASX 200 index down 0.35% to 5,620. And Sol's Kospi up 0.08% to 2,080. In currencies, one euro is currently valued at 1.11 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 124.12 yen and one pound sterling by you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 89 cents. Gold uh, currently valued at $1,193 and Brent crude oil at $65 and 23 cents.
So, Mark, uh, driverless cars, what do you think? Well, I think it's inevitable in developed economies where you've got growing populations. Um, it's going to have no choice if you want to move around, um, yeah. get around the city. You're going to have to be in a car that's driven by something else. Absolutely. All right. Well, things to look out for today. Uh, Australia's GDP numbers and services PMI numbers from China, India and Japan. Mark, what else should be on our radar uh, this today and during the rest of the well, week clearly, in clearly the discussions in Europe over the uh, Greek bailout, whether or not they can agree the terms of how much debt they can incur in their economy and what the targets are, that will have a big bearing on the way risk is being calibrated globally. All right, Mark. Thank you so much for My joining pleasure. us this morning as guest host. That's Mark Conan, and he is the CEO of Cafe Conning Asset Management. And I'm Renita Malhotra Hora, wrapping up for today's Money for Nothing. I'll be away the next couple of days. So Peter Lewis will be here to host uh, the show Thursday and Friday. Let's take a quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be mainly fine, apart from one or two isolated showers at first and very hot during the day. The temperature right now is 29 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 79%. And here's the half-hour news summary with Samantha Butler. Rescue workers in Hubei province have been searching through the night for people who could still be trapped inside a cruise ship that overturned with more than 400 people on board. Radio Australia's Stephen McDonnell reports. The rain has been falling heavily all through the night in Jianli and conditions are not expected to improve today for rescue workers. Hopes of finding more survivors had been bolstered after a few passengers who'd been trapped inside the sunken ship were rescued. But it's now thought the death toll from this ferry 